I'm Julie Kuzmik, Director of Consumer Advocacy at Equifax Canada, and you are listening to The Most Hated F-Word, because finance is not the sole purpose. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to The Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. On today's show, we talk about what is the secret sauce to a credit score? What makes up a credit score? What can you do that actually impacts your credit score if you run into credit issues or if you just want to simply increase your credit. Also, how can you repair your credit if we have a blemish or a credit slip? And we even talk about ranch salad dressing because everybody loves a good ranch salad dressing. Something you'll notice during this conversation is just how much Julie cares about her duty as Director of Consumer Advocacy for Equifax. Julie is passionate about credit score. And if there's someone who I would want in her role, advocating for us consumers for their credit, it's Julie. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. Today, my guest is Julie Kuzmik who is the Director of Consumer Advocacy at Equifax Canada. And she's a recognized authority on consumer credit. She often speaks to industry groups, governments, clients, and consumers to shed light on the credit life cycle. In her role leading consumer advocacy within the organization, Julie helps Canadians build credit confidence. She is often recognized for her ability to convey the complexities of credit scores while engaging her audience, which... Julie, I think is important when we talk about credit is to engage those audience because it's usually something we want to avoid. But Julie has been featured on BNN, Bloomberg TV, as well as several radio and podcast interviews across Canada. She has written articles on credit for Money Sense and has been quoted in many online media outlets, including the Globe and Mail, Huff Post, Bloomberg News, Financial Post, CBC, and North City. Julie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Sean. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, you know, I'm happy to have someone from the credit world come on to our show. And I named the show the most hated F word because most people don't like talking about money, but now we're adding credit to the mix. People might start to feel like they need to run, but they shouldn't because credit is incredibly important. Speaking both from a Canadian and an American perspective on our overall financial life. So today I'm hoping that we could really dive into the impact that the credit has on our financial life. I know speaking with many clients, credit is something that they're scared of. They don't understand it. They feel like there's so many different moving parts that they almost feel like, I don't know. I don't even know how to fix my credit. I don't know how my credit's calculated. So hopefully today we can start to provide some insight to listeners that are telling themselves these stories about credit. During our show, we often talk about stories and often the most complex or the most compelling stories are the stories we tell ourselves. And I think a lot of people are telling themselves stories about credit that they link to their own, I guess, identity in their financial life. And what I mean by that is I've talked to many people who get a credit score pulled and they're super surprised because, and we'll get to this later, but it might be different than what they saw on the consumer site. And and it's different with the bank is seen, but I know the self-talk then goes to, wow, I'm financially illiterate. I don't know how to handle money. What am I going to do? And we kind of get this all or nothing thinking around credit. And I think it's because a lot of people feel that lack of control. So my first question for you is in the bio, you said you help Canadians build credit confidence. I feel like a lot of us can use credit confidence. <laughs> in your words, what what is credit confidence? Wow, that's a really great question. What is important to me is that people feel comfortable making the decisions around the credit part of their finances. So that can mean different things to different people. For some people, it's understanding credit impacts of taking on new loans or applying for new loans. For others, it could uh, be a comfort level with using credit at all or even understanding how 
credit works and how to take care of one's credit and follow your credit in a healthy way to keep that part of your financial picture in the clarity that it deserves. Yeah. So we're talking about this confidence around our credit. So if I'm someone thinking like, oh, I've had so much issue with this credit, I, and the issues might not be totally negative. It's just, I don't understand credit. What would you say to the average Canadian and American? We do have American listeners because they have the same credit system or similar. What would you say to someone on why should I care about credit? And I know that might be a simple question, but, but like what impacts on someone on your end who advocates for Equifax and people building that finance or that confidence? Why should we care about our credit? And it might seem like a simple question, but really why? Yeah, it, it's, it's a really good one. Good place to start to take a step back. Let's think about what credit even is, okay? So credit is obtaining something without having to pay for it right away. A lot of the time, what we're obtaining is money in the form of, say, a credit card, where the credit card company is paying on our behalf when we're making that retail purchase. And then we pay back the credit card company later. Of course, other versions like mortgage loan, a car loan. But that's the idea is getting something before actually having to pay for it. So when we talk about use of credit and what that even means, a big part of that is people understanding that the whole credit ecosystem exists in order to provide a level playing field so that all of us as consumers get treated equally and fairly consistently when we go to apply for new credit. So come with me, if you will, on a little historical Mm -hmm. Thought venture. Let's think back to, uh, let's say it's uh, 150, 200 years ago, back in the day, and somebody is applying for a loan from their bank. They need some money for whatever reason. That person walks into their bank in that time period. What's the bank manager going to do? They're probably going to decide whether or not to lend that person money based on the reputation of that person. So do I know you? Do I know your family? Are you good people in our town? Are you well-respected? Well, what if that person is new to the area and hasn't had an opportunity to build a reputation? Um, that person might unfairly not be able to secure any credit, even though they were going to pay it back and would have been a, a really good potential client for that bank. And so part of the idea behind credit scores is to level the playing field so that there is a consistent set of criteria that allows people to build up proof that I'm going to pay you back. That's what I do when I borrow things. I pay you back. And to kind of bring it down to a person to person level, if you ask me if, if you could borrow 20 bucks because you forgot your wallet and you need to pick up some lunch, I'd be more than happy to loan that to you. Same thing happens again next week. Not a problem. Being with Equifax, would you check my credit score first? I would not bucks? because I don't have <laughs> <No>. access. <laughs> yeah. I, I, even if I wanted to, I can't yeah. go in and see anybody's okay. credit history. Um, but no, 20 bucks. Yeah. I know you and like you. No problem. But what if this happens a few times and you're never paying me back? I'm not really going to want to continue loaning you money if you're not showing me that you're going to pay it back. That's really what the idea is of a credit history and a credit score. It is a way of conveying that history to a potential lender to help show your positive background of like, yeah, I pay things back. Here's here's the evidence. Okay. So yeah, I and you know, you used the word level playing field. And I, I like that word because you you know, everyone has different backgrounds because we're all different people. And I, I like this idea of a level playing field. And I mean, in an, I don't know if it's ideal world or an, a world without debt, maybe we don't need credit, but when houses cost X amount, when vehicles cost X amount, we need to borrow money from someone with this idea of level playing field. What is the correlation, if any, between income and my ability to create a higher credit score. So I guess I've heard people say like, oh, I'll never get a good credit score because I make X amount and Jim down the road makes double. And I've heard this often. Can you shed some light on, does this income matter as much as some people might think? It does not. In fact, the correlation between income and credit score is zero. There we go. 
a lot of people might be surprised to hear that there are lots of super rich people, millionaires who would have terrible credit scores. And there is no reflection of your income or even your employment status in a credit score calculation. That's just not one of the factors. It it is purely based on the data that is in your credit report or your credit file at the, the credit bureau. So I know that we'll dig into that a little bit more, but income and employment aren't pieces of information that are part of the credit score calculation. So it is all about the credit that you have used in the past and the information about those accounts that have been reported to the credit bureaus. Okay. Well, myth busted already. Awesome. We are making good groundwork. So then what is the secret sauce? (laughs) What goes into mine and everyone else's credit score? Good question. Let's segue right into that. So what a credit score is, it's a three-digit number. In Canada, they're between 300 and 900. Uh, In the States, a lot of them top out at 850. So slight interesting difference between us and our American brothers and sisters. A credit score is a summary snapshot view of the data that is in your credit file at the time the score is calculated. So quick background on what's even in a credit file. So when you open a new credit account, if that's a credit card, a car loan, mortgage, even uh, cell phones in a lot of cases, you will be asked for your consent to check your credit history And that will be part of the process of deciding whether or not to approve you for this credit account that you're applying for. So that process actually will create a credit file for you if there isn't one yet. So if this is the very first time someone's applying for credit, that's how a credit file is born, is Mm -hmm. somebody goes to look for one for you and it's not there. And so it gets created. Once those accounts exist they start reporting to both the major credit bureaus in Canada. So that's Equifax and TransUnion, typically on a monthly basis. So we are getting every day, huge amounts of data coming in from the banks, the car lenders, mortgage lenders, cell phone providers. There are a huge number of credit grantors that are reporting to the credit bureaus. And every month, that information gets updated on your credit file. And that's what is starting your credit file and then adding to it month over month. There are a few things that a lot of people don't think of when they think of uh, what might be on a credit file. There's a section of the file which is called the public records section. And it's a little bit uh, misleading, at least it was for me when I first learned about it. The information that's in there is uh, related to bankruptcies. If somebody has declared a bankruptcy, it'll stay on an Equifax credit report for six years from the time the bankruptcy is discharged. If an item has gone into collections, so that would be a bill payment that is so late, usually 90 days late or worse, and it goes into a collection status that will appear in the public records section, as well as legal judgments that are related to financial matters. So If you are taken to court by the Canada Revenue Agency, for example, because you have not paid taxes and a legal judgment comes out of that uh, court case, that will show up on your credit report. Another common one related to financial matters would be unpaid family support obligations. So if those are unpaid and there is a court case and a legal judgment that results, then that ends up on the individual's credit file as well. So when you say public on these ones, like if I did a quick Google search on someone, I might be able to see them. Is it that public? No, it's not that public. So there's no part of the credit file itself that is public. Interestingly, bankruptcies are actually public information. Mm -hmm. So if someone has declared bankruptcy, that there is a way to find out about it. But that is not through the credit file. So I want to be really clear on this, that credit files are very well protected. They are personal and private information. The only people who are allowed access to it are organizations that have what is known as permissible purpose. And there's a set of permissible purposes laid out in the appropriate legislation. And they are things like applying for credit, Mm -hmm. uh, applying for uh, accommodation. So if you're looking to rent a place to live, there is a possibility of having a credit background check. Applying for some jobs uh, would require a credit background check. So 
those are the types of reasons that your credit file might be accessed, but it cannot be accessed without your consent. So just to be ultra clear, nobody is seeing your credit file without asking you first. Okay. So I think we started, I started down this path because I wanted to answer the question of what is actually in a credit score. And I don't think I've gotten there yet. I started out building a credit file for you. And uh, now we need to use that credit file in order to calculate a score. So what a score is, it is a predictive analytic. It is a number that is meant to predict the likelihood that you will pay your bills on time. That's what it is. So they range between 300 and 900, the higher the better. So closer to 900 means more likely to pay bills on time or from the lender's perspective, lower risk. Right. And one important note is that almost nobody has a 900. People think of, well, where's my perfect credit score? Because I haven't done anything wrong. And I want to make it clear that lenders look at credit scores in ranges. So somebody who has a credit score of about 750 or higher is in the highest category from a lender's perspective. A lender does not differentiate between someone with a 780 and someone with an 880, even though there are 100 points difference there. And I raise that because it is very possible for someone to have a long, solid credit history, and they look at a score and they see an 800, and they feel like, well, what am I doing wrong? I, I thought I all my payments are on time. I, I not ever missed anything. Where's that extra hundred point? And so they're not meant to be interpreted as percentages, like an eight hundred uh, out of nine hundred. That's right. that's a really important thing to be aware of. The way that credit score algorithms or the calculations are actually created in the first place is by looking at millions of Canadian credit files that are anonymized, depersonalized. So there's not any privacy issue here. So the statisticians look at millions of Canadians across the spectrum. So people who have been using credit really well, people who've been struggling with credit, people who've declared bankruptcy, you want to cover the whole spectrum. And you take those same people's credit files one to two years later. So you're you're going back in the past and pulling a number of files and then pulling the same people's files one or two years down the line and looking at what has changed. Who has started missing payments? What are the elements in their credit reports that the people who started missing payments have in common? What can we use to predict the likelihood that someone is going to start missing payments? And that's where the contents of the credit score comes from. So it turns out the most predictive information in someone's credit file about future behavior is past behavior. So the payment history, whether or not there are missed payments and how late they are. So are we talking about one 30-day late payment, or are we talking about several 90-day late payments or something that's in collections? Mm -hmm. That payment history accounts for the biggest piece of the overall equation. Some of the other elements that go into the equation are what we call utilization. This is the amount of available credit that's being used. And most credit score versions would focus more on revolving accounts. So that would be a line of credit or a credit card. Because if you're using, say, 50% of your credit card, so you've got a Visa card, it's got a credit limit of $10,000 on it, you've currently got a balance of $5,000. So that's a 50% utilization. That's very different from somebody who's using 50% of a car loan, for example. Mm -hmm. Someone has a a $20,000 car loan, and they currently owe $10,000, all that's telling is that they're about halfway through the car loan payment. Mm -hmm. It's not a reflection of the fact that they're running up credit or, or anything like that. So utilization tends to be heavier where revolving accounts are concerned. So that's another aspect right. of the okay. credit score. The remaining ones are around the length of time the person has been using credit, the mix of credit products he has, and then one of the smaller ones typically is recent applications for credit. And as I was mentioning, where all of this comes from is a statistical analysis that looks at what are the characteristics of a credit file that tend to be correlated with someone starting to miss payments? That's mm -hmm. what we're trying to predict. And for some people, 
applying for a lot of credit in a short period of time has been statistically correlated with then starting to miss payments. Mm-hmm. So the way that that is evident is in the inquiries section. So let's talk about inquiries for a minute. I'm driving the bus now, Sean. I'm, I'm just driving us all, <laughs> all over the credit file here. Yep. We're going north to the, to the inquiry section on the file. So as a consumer protection measure, anytime anyone accesses your credit file, you have a right to know about it. So as a credit bureau, we are obligated to record that on your credit file so that you as a consumer can go and see, oh yeah, here's where that bank looked at my file and here's when I was applying for a car loan. Yeah, I I know why I see these people looking at my... So the way that that is logged on the file is the term we use is inquiry. So basically somebody posted an inquiry against that credit file. Your credit file was delivered to someone. And there are two categories of inquiry, hard inquiries and soft inquiries. The main difference is whether or not you were applying for credit as the reason that your credit file was accessed. So that would be a hard inquiry. Anytime you're applying for credit, you go to apply for a new visa card, car loan, mortgage, any of these things, they're going to ask your consent. Do you consent to us accessing your credit file and that will then result in a new hard inquiry. Sometimes you hear it referred to as a hard hit on the credit report. Anything that isn't related to applying for credit. So if it's you just looking at your own credit file, which is a really important thing we should all be doing to confirm that everything on there is accurate, make sure that there's no evidence of identity theft, somebody applying for credit in your name, for example. That's a soft inquiry. If it's related to a background check for a job, that's a soft inquiry because you're not applying for credit. Soft inquiries are only visible to the consumer. So when you get your own credit file, you're going to see two categories, hard inquiries and soft inquiries, and you'll see them listed under there. But when you apply for credit and you give your consent for the lender to look at your credit report, they're only going to see the hard inquiries. I'm making a lot of these distinctions because... Soft inquiries also are never taken into account with credit score calculations. And there is a huge misconception out there. People are worried that if I check my own credit report, my score goes down every time. That is absolutely not true. That is always a soft inquiry and it will not affect any credit score calculation. I'm going to pause there because there's about 15 different directions we could go (laughs) now. So I'll let you decide where, where you want to go next. Yeah, no, I I appreciate that. And a lot of what you answered were things that I was going to be talking about. So thank you for that. I, I just want to make sure for everyone listening that the recipe for a credit that you just described would be a lot of cups of payment history, utilization, length of time, mix of credit and recent applications. Those are like our main drivers in our credit recipe. Yeah. Now I didn't hear chocolate chips there, but we all know that they make everything better. So if possible, it would be good to throw some of those in. Um, You you got it right. And yeah. Um, And this information is publicly available. Like you can see it on our website at equifax.ca. There's an education section, lots of articles and videos that outline what goes into credit scores. But here's the challenging part. Everybody's looking or a lot of people are looking for the the secret to gaming mm-hmm. the credit score mm-hmm. right how do i how do i get that high score and maintain it and people are hoping that there's the magic bullet answer of like oh well you need to have x number of credit card accounts and then never open this type of account and and here's the big secret well there is a big secret but a it's not a secret and b it's really not all that exciting the point of a credit score is to predict whether you're going to pay your bills on time So if you pay your bills on time, your credit score will reflect that. So unfortunately, that means that it can take a while for someone who has had been dealt some tough cards and may have missed some payments, may have had something in collections, may have had a bankruptcy. Those can be challenging situations to climb out of, no doubt. But there are a few things, and I'm just going to pretend you asked me, what should someone in that situation do? Because now I'm going to go ahead and answer that question anyway. For people who are trying to rebuild credit after having some incident occur, there are limits on how long negative information can remain on your credit file 
also as a consumer protection measure. So even if you declare bankruptcy, it's not going to follow you around for the rest of your life. A bankruptcy is off a credit file within six or seven years of it occurring. And once it's gone, there is not evidence anymore on the credit file that it occurred. Unless you declare bankruptcy again, and then there are some more consequences there. The same is true of an item in collections. So items that go into a collection status that are late enough, so a missed payment that has gone on for long enough to end up in collections, that will remain on the credit report even once it's been paid. So that is a misconception as well. We get calls from people saying, well, I paid this item in collections, so why is it still on my file? It should be gone now. A collections item does stay on for six years, but the older and older it gets, so as it gets closer to that six-year mark, it typically has a lower and lower impact on the credit score calculation. There's a really big caveat here, as long as you're making your payments on time for everything mm-hmm. else. So if you're continuing to make late payments, if you're continuing to have other items that go into collections, that's not going to help your credit score. But things that are would be considered negative, they do age and eventually fall off the credit file. So there is hope for people who are rebuilding. So let's imagine us like someone's rebuilding. Um, Something that I often see is we attach so much of our financial worth to this credit score number. And I'm glad you distinguish that. I think it was 750 to 850. There's a marginal difference from the lender's perspective. Zero. There's a zero. Zero. Okay. Zero. (laughs) And I think that's good because, you know, even when you check your credit score, there's like that little bar graph that says you're in this percentage of the population. I think just because like it's it's a number that we don't know so much about. Well, we do, but we just, not Equifax's fault. We just don't like to look into it as consumers that much, but we attach so much to it. And I've seen people who've been denied loans, who had a bad payment, who never got the mail, whatever it is. And I think it's it's reassuring to hear that these things fall off and that we, we don't need to per se attach our whole financial, I guess, health on this credit score. Sure, it's going to impact how we borrow against money. It's going to impact whether lenders give us a higher, lower, or no loan. But I, I, I guess I would like to get your perspective on this. Is just that, what would you say to the person who attaches so much of their like financial worth to this number? A couple of things. The first one is a credit score is not a moral judgment. Mm-hmm. It is not a judgment of character. It is not a judgment of human worth. It's a number that is calculated based on other numbers. Mm -hmm. That's really ultimately what a credit score is. It can have a lot of power for sure. I I don't want to diminish the Mm -hmm. fact that it's really challenging if you're looking for a new place to live. You're talking to landlords who may not want to rent to you because you've got a blemish in your credit history. That can be a, a challenging situation. But the credit aspect of our financial lives, it is just one part of our financial life. So you could have a huge amount of wealth. You could have property and wealth holdings and all kinds of things that none of that is reflected in your credit score. And that's why you can have millionaires who have awful credit scores and vice versa. Somebody who's struggling month to month, but they make their payments they're going to have a good score. Mm -hmm. The income is not part of it, right? Mm -hmm. So that's an important thing to keep in mind is Mm -hmm. that it's one piece of Mm -hmm. a pretty big puzzle. It is not the whole thing. Another important aspect is that there are multiple credit score versions out there. And this is a surprise for a lot of people. Not all banks are using the same credit score. In fact, most of them use different scoring versions from each other. There are multiple versions of credit scores that are sold to the banks by both of the credit reporting agencies. So both Equifax and TransUnion, we sell multiple versions of scores. I have a really ridiculous analogy for this, which involves salad dressing. I think you probably didn't think we'd be talking about salad dressing when we started this conversation, but you were wrong. Can I, can I say something? I have a question lined up. Salad versus savings. People make distorted decisions when experiencing a lack of resources. What does that mean? <laughs> I had your article. <laughs> that sounds like the title of something I wrote on LinkedIn. Yeah. Hmm. 
Okay, so I make a lot of salad references. Jeez. Okay, so you, you're going into the grocery store to buy salad dressing. You want to get a bottle of ranch. You go to the section where the salad dressings are, and you're going to see five or six choices. They're all the same thing. It's different brands. One of them might be low salt. They all have mostly the same ingredients, just maybe in a different order. One of them has a little more garlic. One of them has a little more something else. It's the same idea with different versions of credit scores. So the same way the grocery store sells multiple brands of salad dressing, the credit bureau sells multiple versions of credit scores. And so they all fall into that same pattern that I outlined about payment history being the most important factor in the score calculation. They all range between 300 and 900, but there are slight differences. Some of them don't include certain types of data that are on the credit report. Some of them put a higher weight on one aspect of the credit report versus another aspect. And this is related to how the credit ecosystem has evolved over time. There's a long and fascinating history to this. It's probably another 90-minute conversation all on its own. But here's the part that I want your listeners to be really clear on. When you look at your credit score, wherever you're getting it from, it could be Credit Karma, it could be your bank's website, it could be from Equifax directly, you're going to see a number, but it is not necessarily the same number that your bank or whoever you talk to next who's looking at a credit score, it's not necessarily the same one they're going to use. That's okay. That's how the industry has always been. And there are a lot of different levers in there that are used by banks and lenders in order to account for differences and so on. So the important thing to focus on is not the number of the credit score. It's the data that the credit score is being calculated on because that is what is in common between all the banks and all the lenders is the data that's in your credit file. And it's less appealing to people to go look for their credit file You have to look through the different sections and you have to try and understand what it means. It's more interesting to find a number because we all relate to numbers. It's a, it's a quick hit answer, but I really encourage people. I know it's hard, but please focus more on getting your credit report, your Mm -hmm. credit file, credit history. I'm using all these terms interchangeably, Mm -hmm. but you can do that for free directly from Equifax or TransUnion. You can do it online. It is not something you have to pay for. And that's relatively new, by the way, in case anybody's thinking, I looked at Equifax and I had to pay for it. You don't need to pay for it anymore. In fact, you can also get a score for free from Equifax as well. Please do that. It's so important to check. There might be an error on there, Mm -hmm. but there also might be evidence that somebody has applied for credit in your name. And you want to know if that has happened. You want to look at that hard inquiry section and see, well, why was Scotiabank looking at my credit report back in November? I didn't apply for anything there. To use a random example, nothing against Scotiabank or any (laughs) other bank, but those are the things that you want to look for and look into sooner rather than later. You want to find that now rather than when you're trying to close on the mortgage on the home that you just bought. And the lender is saying, but you declared bankruptcy last year, so we can't lend to you. And you're like, what? How is there a bankruptcy on my credit file? I did not. You don't want to be trying to sort through that at that moment. Right. So I I have a few questions here. First one is, thanks for the explanation. And the salad dressing is a great analogy. Thank you. (laughs) But why do we sell so many salad dressings in terms of our credit on something that's already kind of confusing. Why are there multiple versions? I understand that the banks and everyone has some, and I really like your advice. Don't focus on that number, even though I am right now, focus on what's in that score. But why is there multiple numbers? There's a few reasons. One of them is that, and this is really interesting for the finance nerds among us, the credit bureaus didn't always have all of the different types of data being reported to them. So for example, mortgage data, meaning people who hold mortgages, that account data only started being reported to credit bureaus in Canada in the last eight-ish years Mm. when credit cards and car loans and other types of credit have been reported for decades prior to that. So 
why why was it that mortgages weren't reported? It's it's a pretty interesting story. <laughs> banks were worried that other competitors, other banks might try to poach their clients for mortgages specifically. And so I'm going to name some banks here just to make it easier to walk through a scenario, but this isn't specific about any yeah. of these banks. So let's say that I have a, a mortgage with the Bank of Montreal and I see a new credit card at CIBC that uh, they come out with and I want this new Visa card that they're offering. So I go to CIBC, I apply for this credit card. They ask for my consent to check my credit. I give it, they pull my credit file, do the score, all that stuff. Yes, Julie, you're approved. Here's your new Visa card. Well, in, as part of this process, they have pulled my credit file. So they can see all the other accounts that I have. They can see any other credit cards that I have that are being reported to the credit bureaus and they can see my mortgage. Oh, she's got a mortgage with the Bank of Montreal. Interesting. Oh, and I see that it was opened about four years ago mm -hmm. and she still owes a lot of money on it. Most people renew on about a five-year term. So she's probably likely to be renewing her mortgage soon. So when we send her that welcome package for the new Visa card, why don't we just throw in a little teaser rate for the mortgage that we're offering that we're willing to pay an early breaking penalty fee on behalf of our client to bring them over to our mortgage? This is one of the potential scenarios that the banks were worried about with providing that data. But they really wanted that data because mortgage data is very predictive mm -hmm. in banks being in the business of measuring risk. Mortgage data is very helpful for them to be able to do that. So they were stuck in this catch-22 of like, well, we really want to see the data from the other guys. We just don't want to have to give ours. And so eventually they came up with an agreement where they would provide the data. They would start reporting it to the credit bureaus. But when the credit files are being sent out, some of the information about mortgages has to be masked. So you can't actually see the start date of a mortgage, for example. So you can't see who holds that mortgage. So you get the value of knowing the person has the mortgage and seeing some of the information about it, but you can't see enough to make it easy to try to pull that client away from their existing lender. So that's the background. It was about eight years ago that that data started being reported to the credit bureaus. Any credit scores that had been developed prior to that and it's a multi-year process to develop a credit score. So credit score versions aren't something that we're coming up with every year. Like the two things that trigger a credit score, a new credit score getting developed typically are either what I just described, which is a new type of data starting to be reported to the credit bureau. Or the second one is when consumer behavior changes. So I mentioned that we use, we look back in time, maybe four or five years ago and pull millions of Canadians records. Well, if we did that 10 years ago when we were developing a score, so we're actually looking at 15 years ago data, maybe what people do has changed. And so maybe it's not such a big deal if somebody's carrying a high balance on a credit card the way it used to be. Maybe that's not any more indicative that they're about to start missing payments. So we're always monitoring the performance of the source to see, are they still being as predictive as they should be? Are they actually performing their job? So going back to the mortgage example, you would think that, okay, now you have mortgage data in the bureau. Can't you just like include it in the scores that are already being calculated? It's a little bit like trying to add an extra egg to a cake that has already been baked. It doesn't work. You have to go back to the start and incorporate it from the beginning. And so the appearance of mortgage data was like an extra egg that, okay, we got to create a new score version now that incorporates the mortgage data. Once there was enough of it in the bureau to be statistically significant and to be sure that you're not unfairly prejudicing for or against people from a particular bank, if that bank hasn't started reporting their mortgage data yet, but the others have, like there are a lot of checks and balances that you want to make sure you're being as fair as possible and as consistent as possible. So that creates a new score version. There would be banks and lenders who were using a previous version that didn't include mortgages. And it's a really big deal, particularly for a big bank to change a score version. It's a project that takes years and millions of dollars 
there are so many dependencies within bank processes, both like system dependencies, like there's an IT piece to it, but then there's also like the risk management piece and the commitments that banks are making to their shareholders about the level of risk that they're going to carry. Well, you're, if you start using a different score, you're starting to use a different measure of risk. So now you've got to do all these calculations to make sure all the downstream impacts are accounted for. So it's a big deal. There are a lot of lenders that continue using older score versions for that reason. They can put in other checks and balances to account for a score whose performance is changing over time. But that's one of the reasons that we've ended up with multiple score versions or multiple bottles of ranch salad dressing, if you will, that are in our toolbox. Okay. I guess that makes sense. I never realized the mortgage aspect to it. So uh, I appreciate that clarity. This is a comment. And then I got a question. I can imagine with the amount of data that you guys are collecting, the amount of data that banks are collecting with fintech companies innovating and being able to make sense of data more and more, two things where I'm going in. And I don't know if Equifax is going down there, but I could see a lot of, I guess, data on behavioral patterns people make financially could be extracted and used in a positive manner with more technology as we go forth. Because I'm just thinking, you have all this information on how people make positive and where they fault on where, you know, who knows in the future, if you guys, if there's could be some uh, collaboration where people are getting notifications of you're getting low or here's your patterns over the last year, based on our millions of Canadians, we surveyed, you're at risk of this, 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 here's what you can do. So I don't know if you're in this position to comment on Equifax. That's just where my mind is going is with all this technology now. I think we could do so many positive things that could be almost proactive in a sense. And I think sometimes I see credit in the sense of you're suggesting something good, be proactive by looking at the report, but could we not use more of this data to be proactive? Yeah, these are really great points that you're raising. And absolutely, we have been looking into these avenues for a while. And we have some really cool partnerships out there where one of the things that has been really helpful for people who are new to Canada or just starting up credit where they don't have a positive credit history yet in Canada, there are some fintechs which do things like look at what is happening in somebody's deposit account. So in their checking account, and making some inferences around cash flow and credit risk that can help fill out some of the picture for a lender who is trying to adjudicate or make a decision on an applicant and get a sense of what level of credit risk they might present. There's also open bank that is coming down the pipe in Canada, which I think has been rebranded as Consumer Directed Finance. But some really fascinating things have happened there in the UK, which has had open banking in place for the last few years. And I think we're on the brink of seeing some really cool stuff happen in Canada once the opportunity opens up for the sharing of data in appropriate and consented ways. Mm -hmm. and, and I can't overemphasize that enough you have to be so careful of unintended consequences. Right. There are often these great opportunities that make a lot of sense. And then as you play it out, you realize, oh my gosh, but what if it goes this way? Or what mm -hmm. if this piece gets introduced? Mm -hmm. So we really are doing our diligence on that side to make sure that we're not inadvertently introducing bad things in an attempt to be doing good. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad you pointed that out because as you were talking, my brain was going a mile a minute. I'm like, whoa, all these amazing things can happen. But with your comment there, it made me think of the movie or the documentary on Netflix, Social Dilemma, where they have the founders of many, many social media companies saying like, we had no idea that it was going to do what it's doing now. It's a, This is an unintended consequence. So I appreciate your guys's Concern for that when you're dealing with so much sensitive data of Canadians is that 
you want to do your due diligence as, as appealing as some of the stuff might seem. I, I really do appreciate that confidentiality that Equifax does have because, you know, as we talked about, this is a big part of whether we can borrow money and so forth. And it impacts us. We made that distinction that it's not our financial life, but it also impacts us. So I appreciate your um, concern for our information. One thing that I always find interesting is um, I come across headlines pretty regularly about how other countries in the world are using social media data in order to predict creditworthiness and potentially that in place of a credit score where somebody can't be scored for whatever reason. And those are really fascinating developments, but... <laughs> Something like that is most likely not going to happen in Canada, where you're not going to be judged based on your tweets of like, should I loan you the money for the car kind of thing. (laughs) We might be slower moving in some ways, but we're also really paying attention to potential consequences. And I've heard people talk about that is can they just not look at my social media profile and use that as part of my credit and I don't know if we have an <laughs> pluses and minuses, yeah. right? Like there's some really interesting stuff happening in China with like social reputation scores. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a lot of really fascinating potential there. Truly fascinating. It just brings with it some additional risk of a different nature. Yeah. It, I, I can't remember what other documentary watched a couple of years ago and like social credit was a big thing. And it was just about how much even respect you give someone. And like, there's this like bar above them that has their credit rating, but everyone became our, their social credit rating. But then everyone was so fake and was so concerned about that score. It was just like a... I think it may have been an episode of Black Mirror. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. That was frightening. Yes, that one, it haunts me. Yeah. I still think about that. And you know, I think people should go watch that. And yeah, I remember one part standing out when the truck driver was going to pick someone up, but they didn't have enough uh, social credit or whatever. And they didn't. And yeah. So whenever I hear credit ratings and social media, that immediately goes to my mind. And again, it goes back to, I, I appreciate your guys' concern of what consequences can happen. As we get close here to wrap up, I'm going to ask you a question that uh, we've been asked everyone on the podcast And so the whole intent of my show is the intersection of our mind, our money, and what matters most. This conversation certainly was circulated around our money because this impacts our financial lives. But my end question really goes to what matters most. And it's kind of a personal question, but I'm a big believer. We all have these stories. We tell ourselves stories around credit. We tell ourselves stories around the income we have. We tell ourselves stories uh, about ourselves in this world. And if you could... Fast forward yourself, say you're 90 years old, you're on your favorite porch, looking back at your life. Uh, You could be anywhere in the world, the most peaceful place in the world. And you're contemplating writing your kids' kids a letter on what you felt based on your learned experience, providing you with the most peace in your relationship with money. What would it be? And I know I did not prepare you for that one. Yeah, that's a (laughs) pretty serious question. I'm actually going to go back in time to something that happened when I was about 10 years old that um, has shaped my thinking around money quite a bit. Um, And I think I would use a version of this in that letter. And that is that uh, my family moved from one area to another when I was 10. And the area we moved to was a little more affluent than the one that we had left. And there was a noticeable change in the level of materialism at the school that I went to and with the neighbors that we had in this new area. And um, my parents were quite frugal, not uh, too stingy, slightly stingy potentially, but they said to me once, I was commenting on all the luxury cars that were in the driveways of the houses around ours. And my mom said, you know that we could have two Mercedes in the driveway if we wanted to, we just choose not to. And it blew my mind. The concept hadn't occurred to me that you could afford something, but choose not to buy it to the extent that I would have thought about it, which as a 10 year old who was mostly concerned about wearing the popular jeans to school 
you know, I wasn't wondering why we weren't buying a Mercedes, but it really, like, it's really stuck with me for decades. I now am embarrassed looking back at how much it shocked me at the time of like, oh, you mean you could have bought a nicer car? You just didn't? Well, why would you do that? But I think the the core of that is the importance of making deliberate choices, being intentional in your choices. And this is how I choose to live my life now. There are some things that I prioritize over money. And there are times when I prioritize money over convenience or materialism in some way. But there are times when I decide, no, I I could get this for cheaper, but my time is worth more right now. So I am going to spend a little more or I'm going to spend more for convenience. And I think that there's so much value and, and I completely acknowledge how lucky I am and the level of privilege that I have that I can make a choice like that. Because of course, there are people who might love to be able to spend a little more for convenience, but aren't in a position to do that. But I think it's, it's important to know yourself and be intentional in those choices rather than being in a position later to look back and say, why did I spend so much on that? Like, Mm -hmm. I didn't even like it. I care about it, look after it, whatever it is. Well, thank you. I appreciate that answer. Lots of great comments that I think a lot of people can reflect on, on their own stories. So I appreciate you sharing that. I see we are at our time. Thank you for joining me and sharing so much information about Equifax in Canada, a lot of things that our Canadians can do in the show notes. I'll summarize some of the notes that we took, but I think, you know, your, your, your part of your letter was just being intentional making those decisions. And that just brings me back to what your secret sauce is. It's, I guess it's being intentional, paying your bills and the rest will take care of itself in terms of your credit. It's not a game. Don't try to get the highest score. Be intentional, I guess, and pay those bills and then carry on creating our, I guess, our financial stories that we want and not obsess about our credit score. And buy the ranch dressing that makes you happy. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And um, I look forward to future chats. Such a pleasure, Sean. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in today. If you're interested in pulling your credit file and getting your credit score for free, Julie has left us a link in the show notes at themosthatedfword.com and you'll be able to click on that link to pull your free credit file and credit score. It will not be a hard impact on your credit file, so that's great. Head over to themosthatedfword.com to get the link. If you've been enjoying shows like today, please head over to Apple Podcasts to leave a review. I would greatly appreciate it. Until next time, have a great day.